Okay, Jesse, what an insane multi-year deception last week. That was way too much. What's the story this week? A fifth wedding for both bride and groom proves not to be the charm when one of them goes missing and ends up dead. What ensues is a wild flea from justice, the worst trial you've ever heard about, and lots of lingering questions. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about runs from the law, crazy trials, and of course, love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Okay. Thank you guys so much again, as usual, for all of your awesome reviews. It's been so nice to hear from each and every one of you. We've been having so much fun sending out stickers. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if you have done a review and you want our new stickers, please just screenshot your review and DM it to us or email us at lovers at lovemurder.love. Also, I feel like you've been getting so many suggestions. Oh my gosh, yes. I've gotten so many suggestions, which reminds me, last week for the hacking case, I totally forgot Alicia, who recommended the case as well. We actually had three people who recommended the case. So my huge apologies to Alicia, who was so kind to even send the book that I ended up using for research. So I'm shouting you out in this episode. I am so sorry. And wow, I'm Jessie, going to, wow. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. But Andy, you saw what my um, organizational system looked like for <laughs> suggestions, which was essentially it's a It's better notebook. now, Alicia, I promise. Yes, Andy um, kind of digitized it for me, but I'm also going to try to come up with a better system. So guys, in the future, <laughs> maybe next week, maybe the week after, I'm going to tell you to go to a site and probably re-give us uh, your suggestions because I don't want to miss anyone and it breaks my heart that I missed Alicia. So going forward, we're going to have a system and all of your suggestions will hopefully eventually be heard on Love Murder. Um, so fingers crossed, no one recommended this one because I don't have anyone attached to it. I double checked too. So it's on both of us if if someone did. If there is, yes. So yeah, this is a case I just found very interesting. It is by a author that we've covered before. His name is Michael Fleeman. The book that we're using today is called If I Die. A shout out to Nancy who re-brought him to my attention. There's also a 2020 episode from this past February 2021 called Five Weddings and a Funeral, which I do recommend viewing maybe after this episode because you'll get a picture of these key players. Are you ready, Andy? I am ready. All right. It had been a poorly thought out fishing trip. One of the four fishermen was quick to point out. It was January 21st, 1995, quiet and cool and the men had scrambled in the darkness to find a gravel path that would lead to Lake Mojave, 
a long, narrow reservoir straddling the Nevada and Arizona border, a 90-minute drive from Las Vegas. After four hours of silent darkness, the fish weren't biting, and a gentle rain had begun to chill the men's bones. Oh, that's a saucy one. <laughs> it's the tea. <laughs> Even the moonlight had disappeared. Packing it up, they trudged in a single file line up the ravine, losing the path and slipping on loose stones and dirt. The single beam of the flashlight caught something eerie. A human skull, one of the men cried. And at first, the other men laughed at what had to be a joke. But no, there in the glow of the thin strip of light was indeed a human skull, resting on what would have been its left cheek. The men could see what looked like fillings in the teeth and threads of cartilage holding the jaw to the rest of the skull. Uh, what? This is the middle of the night. It's raining. Can you imagine? No. Three of the men were trained military police, and they knew better than to touch it or move it. They hightailed it back to civilization and called the police as soon as they reached a payphone. The next day, three out of four of the men returned to the lakeside grave, located five miles from the closest settlement, a place called Nelson's Landing, to assist the police in finding the remains. The skull was located 70 yards from the roadway, remarkably well-preserved. In the back of the skull, there were three small holes that suspiciously resembled bullet holes. There were new discoveries as well. The police found a fire pit a few yards up the ravine from the skull. Inside the fire pit was burned bone fragments and the charred metal frame of what looked like had been an antique chest. The forensics team noted deep grooves in the gravel, indicating that the heavy trunk had been dragged to the fire pit, most likely with the body inside. So they burned the body, but not the skull? So there are some theories about this later on, which we will get to. Okay. You know, I'm just being a nosy, nosy nose no, no, some of them include the fact that it could have happened at night. Maybe the person didn't realize that the skull rolled away. Maybe macabrely. Casually. They put it out on purpose. And then, of course, there was a slight burn mark in the back of the skull near where the uh, bullet holes were. Okay. And they think that perhaps scavengers had pulled the skull away from the burn pit. <sighs> but it is curious, and we will get more into this later on in the episode. Okay. One other small piece of evidence was found glinting in the sunlight about 13 feet from the burn pit. It was a bracelet, tarnished but intact, tiny diamonds spelling out the name Ron. Ron in diamonds? Yep. R-O-N, Ron in diamonds. The poor soul whose skull had just been found would not remain nameless for long. And once investigators were able to connect the dots, a diabolical plot was revealed, one motivated by greed, love, and jealousy. The discovery would spark an arrest, a flee from justice, a fugitive on the run for years, and then one of the truly most ridiculous trials I have ever read about. Without further ado, let's get into this. It sounds very love murder -y. It is. This starts out fairly straightforward and then it just gets 
more and more dramatic. And even like you think the drama's done and it's not. And then it's not again. And then it's not again. And then I even have like a postscript that's even more dramatic. It just gets crazy. Wow. So I think that a good place for us to start is with a man named Ron and Diamonds. Yes, <laughs> that's the perfect place to start. I just, I can see yeah. the title. I can see it. It just, Ron, Ron, sparkling. Like Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds, yeah, Ron with Ron. the Bracelet of Diamonds. So Ronald Rudin would eventually become a Sin City real estate developer worth millions. But on November 14th, 1930, he was just a wee newborn baby. Ron grew up in Joliet, Illinois, the only child of Roy Rudin, who worked for a chemical company, and Stella, his warm and doting wife. Ron had a happy childhood, spending summers at his grandparents' farm, learning to hunt, and leading a band of cousins around. And his cousins, because I think he was an only child, were more like siblings to him. Yep. The idyllic childhood was marred by the death of Ron's father by a heart attack at a young age. And as a result of the shocking loss, Ron and his mother grew extremely close. They would be close their entire life. After graduating high school in the late 1940s, Ron attended community college and enlisted in the Army Reserves, eventually being sent overseas to serve in the Korean War. After the war, Ron briefly returned home to Illinois, where he worked in a soldering plant and learned how to fly planes. His love for hunting continued, and on the way home from a hunting trip out west, he detoured to take in Las Vegas and fell madly in love with the glittering oasis in the desert. Ron began his real estate empire by working construction jobs, saving for foreclosed properties, fixing them up, and flipping them. Awesome. He soon ventured into commercial real estate and opened his own realty business. And this was, I mean, he was really a self-made man. And we're also talking about early 1960s in Vegas. Yeah, that's an amazing time to get in the bottom floor of real estate in Vegas. It's also like at that time, the casinos were really glamorous. The Rat Pack was there. There was the mob. I mean, Elvis is singing Viva Las Vegas. I mean, business was booming. It's a great time. I like it blows my mind that Vegas evolved from that to what it is now. It really is. It's well, I think I, we can blame a lot of like, I think there was like a 90s push to make it family friendly yep. with like amusement parks yep. and like you more kitsch. Yeah. But yeah, back in the day, I mean, the 60s, this was like glamorous adults only, dirty mob stuff going on. Yep. It's a totally different place. So Ron did very, very well for himself. And when the money started flowing in, he bought his dream car, a 62 Cadillac convertible, and affixed it with a vanity license plate that read RRR1, which stood for Ronald Rudin Realty. So for the rest of his life, Ron would only drive black Cadillacs. Like even when he found a new Cadillac that he wanted to own and it was in the wrong color, he got it professionally repainted black. That's amazing. But I do feel like he missed his calling to do like Ron cubed or like R cubed, <laughs> you know? Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you get that. You only rarely get that opportunity. The RRR. Yeah. So yes. And he was also super fastidious about his car's cleanliness. He even had a man on staff that's only job was to clean his car. Wow. 
Yeah. That's awesome. In 1963, he bought his first and only home. It was a fairly modest house for the soon-to-be millionaire. It was a two-bed, two-bath, one-story, but it had two features that Ron loved, security and proximity. The house had a fortress-like fence. On the top of it was cinder blocks with razor wire. So uh, <laughs> not exactly home and gardens, more like penitentiary over here. And... It was also situated directly behind the strip mall, which he eventually bought, which is where his realty office was. Okay. So yeah, you'll come to see that Ron was a little paranoid about security and perhaps for a good reason. While he was loyal to his Cadillacs and to the modest home he lived in for his entire life, the same could not be said about how he treated his women. Oh no. Ron was married a whopping five times. In 1962, he fell in love with and married his secretary, which was kind of a habit of Ron's. He liked to shit where he ate, for lack of a a better (laughs) term. But accurate term. Donna Brinkmeyer became wife number one, but the two divorced in less than a year. Donna alleged that Ron was mentally and physically cruel during the marriage. Ron denied the allegations, but the brief foray into matrimony left such a bad taste in his mouth that he remained single for the next eight years. Whoa. And... I say single, but certainly not celibate. Ron (laughs) got quite a bit of a reputation for being a playboy at this point, routinely juggling two or three girlfriends, oftentimes women who worked for him. Whoa. Uh-oh. So he's just making a lot of poopies. All it was over kind of work. like Las Vegas madman up in here, right down to the excessive drinking, a problem a number of his ex-girlfriends and wives did complain about. Oh no. In 1971, he met and married a beautiful blonde insurance agent named Carolyn Holland. While his second marriage only lasted four years, he and Carolyn would describe the split as amicable and would remain dear friends and even colleagues for the rest of their lives. Okay. Carolyn reportedly never took off the wedding ring that Ron had given her, not even when she remarried. What? I don't know. I feel like if I was the new husband, I'd be like, can we? please ditch that. (laughs) She's like, you'll just have to work around this one that I already have. (laughs) Just slide it on my finger on top of the other one. Stack them up. And Ron also refused to stop wearing a piece of jewelry that Carolyn had had custom made for him for their second anniversary. A white gold bracelet that spelled out Ron in diamonds. Oh. Hint, hint, hint. Not long after his divorce from Carolyn, Ron met the woman who was destined to become wife number three, and this relationship actually seemed like a real love match. Her name was Peggy, and she was a young, vivacious hairdresser and devoted mother of three. Whoa. The couple got married on April 15th, 1977, when Peggy was 31 and Ron was 46. Ron was totally enamored with the blonde Spitfire, and for good reason. She was cute, fun, and she even shared one of his greatest hobbies, hunting. No way. He was this tiny, blonde, cute, adorable woman, was apparently a prize-winning hunter, bagging exotic animals like oryxes and Persian ibexes, Uh. which are what Nathaniel calls DLTs. He calls them deer-like things. (laughs) Yeah, he was telling me how he went on safari when he was in his early 20s. And he was like, yeah, I saw a lot of, you know, lions and I saw a giraffe and, you know, a lot of DLTs. And I was like, what? A DLT? What's that? He's like, you know, deer-like things. (laughs) Would that include like an antelope? 
Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that an antelope is like an in antelope that. is absolutely a DLT. <laughs> yes. So I guess she was like the only person in this region who had a license to hunt these things. And she was like well known and there was like shooting competitions that she would win. So yeah, so they they had shared common interests. I think that he liked her children. It was just a very good fit. But unfortunately, under Peggy's bubbly exterior, she did suffer from severe depression that worsened during the holiday season. Apparently, I and I didn't get a lot of details about this, but she had had a son who died during the Christmas season when he was a very young child. And I think like, like toddler age. Yeah. That's enough to give anybody depression around the holidays, you know? Well, she had, you know, soldiered through, you know, how many years since that had happened. But it seemed like in 1978, she could no longer cope with the long dark nights and the depression. On December 20th, 1978, Peggy called her daughter to say goodbye locked the exterior door to the house and then the bedroom door and shot herself with a cold handgun. <gasps> no. How old was she? She was only like 32. Oh my God, that's horrible. I mean, this was tragic. And so somebody, either a friend or a colleague was trying to get a hold of Peggy and they couldn't. So they called Ron and they knew that Peggy was depressed. And so they were like, you need to get into your house. I don't know where she is. I don't know what's going on. She sounded really depressed last time I talked to her. So he obviously unlocked his front door and then he got to the bedroom door, which was locked from the inside. So he had to break it down. Oh my God. So he broke the door down. And when he got inside their bedroom, he found his beloved third wife's skull blown off and a pool of blood around her. Jesse. I know. Instinctively, he picked up the gun and he placed it on the dresser. And then he realized, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. Now my prints are on it. So he called the police right away after that and explained what had happened. Uh, The autopsy did show powder burns on Peggy's right hand as well as Valium in her system. So it seemed like how they explained it with the powder burns and everything she was left-handed and it looked like what had happened was she took some Valium. She actually held the gun with her left hand and held the barrel with her right hand against her forehead and then shot the gun. Horrible. Yeah. So it, it was easy to tell, I guess, what had happened based on the autopsy. And Peggy had also left a note addressed to Ron asking him to give some personal belongings to her daughter. However, at the bottom of the note, a request to be buried with her young son who had died appeared to be written by a different hand. And some people thought that Ron might have written that portion. Oh my God, no, no. Concerning. I'd say. Yeah, because of this and the fact that Ron's prints were on the gun, there would be speculation for years that Ron had actually murdered Peggy despite the fact that the police had cleared him. Okay. This bubbled over at Peggy's December 23rd funeral when Peggy's uncle Chris verbally attacked Ron, calling him a son of a bitch and a dirty bastard and accused him of killing Peggy. What did Peggy's daughter think? I don't know actually what her surviving children thought of the whole thing. The author, Michael Fleeman, did not say. 
this really, really shook Ron up a lot. I mean, losing Peggy and finding her body, then being accused at her funeral of her murder. Horrible. Yeah, it really sent him into a tailspin. So for the next year, he did not actually date. He embarked on a spiritual quest. And every single day for the next year, he placed flowers on Peggy's grave. He began to attend church regularly. He even started going to counseling sessions with the minister to try to move forward. He equally plunged into work, beginning to work 14 hours a day, six days a week, and beginning two of his most ambitious and lucrative projects, developing land in the mountains outside of Las Vegas with the plans to build upscale resorts and country clubs. So Ron was rolling in dough by this point, but he was also doing some potentially shady shit to avoid paying taxes. Oh, no. I was actually going to ask you because they got married on tax day. I was like, I wonder if there's any sort of like tax thing with that. Oh, wow. I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a longtime bookkeeper, Sharon Melton, and she reported in the Michael Fleeman book that she had once noticed that Ron's business records showed promissory notes for property held in the names of three men who either didn't exist or didn't know that their names were being used. Oh, God. The effect would be to make it look to the IRS as though Ron was carrying more debt and thus required to pay less in taxes than in fact he was. Got it. Sharon was very loyal to Ron, though, and she said that she confronted Ron and she claimed that he quickly fixed the situation. Okay, but he did not. Well, we don't know. We don't know. There might have just been some cut in corners, you know. So Ron married for the fourth time in 1985. She was an attractive woman named Karen who later claimed that Ron became a different man when he drank. She said he became paranoid, rude, and refused to leave the house after 9 p.m. After two years of dysfunction, the couple divorced. Ron didn't stay single long, though. That same year, at the age of 56, he met a beautiful 44-year-old single mother at church. And, you know, church seemed like the type of place to meet a quality woman. Or at least that's what Ron thought when he met the comely Margaret Kraft. So Margaret had red hair and a willowy figure. She spoke softly with just a hint of a Southern accent that Ron found extremely charming. And it wasn't just church that the two had in common. Margaret, like Ron, had been married four times before as well. Wild. What are the odds? What are the odds that you, I think most people going into that would be like, oh man, at what date do I reveal that I've been married four times? So it'd be so nice if you're like, I got to, I just got to tell you something, you know, we've been seeing each other for a while. Remember I mentioned my ex-wife? Well, there's, there's four of them and her to be like, oh my God, I've been married four times too. You'd be like, ah, this is great. Oh, soulmates. Soulmates. So let's talk about the soulmate. Margaret was born Margaret Frost on May 31st, 1943, the eldest of three sisters born to a barber and store manager in Memphis, Tennessee. There's that accent. Yep. Her family struggled economically, and they moved around a lot to find work. This resulted in Margaret living in 15 different states before she graduated high school. Whoa. That is a lot. How do you even do that? I don't know. I think it was extremely hard on her. It also, though, did make her somewhat of a social chameleon. As a result of moving all the time, always being the new kid, she kind of had to 
you know, change herself to fit in depending on where she was. You yeah, know? that's does not seem healthy. No, it'll definitely like aid her later on in her journey, let's just say. Mm-hmm. I see what you're putting down. Yes. Uh, the family's last stop before she graduated high school was the suburbs of Chicago, where Margaret married husband number one, Gerald Mason, right out of high school in 1962 when she was 18 years old. So the couple moved in together in Chicago proper, and they had two children, a son named Mitchell and a daughter named Christina. Despite the fact that the family didn't have a lot of money, these were very happy times for Margaret. She would later say about her first marriage, we were just starting out. I can remember at our happiest, he was only making $75 a week as a carpenter. Oh. Unfortunately, the happiness did not last, and after a decade of marriage, the two split, Margaret complaining that Gerald was controlling, argumentative, and wouldn't allow her to work. It sounds like one of those things where they just grew apart and grew on each other's nerves, and any attempt by the other person to get the relationship back together only further drove them apart. Yeah. Yeah, so they got divorced, and she would spend the next 15 years meeting men, marrying them, and divorcing them nearly as fast. Husband number two was a horse trainer from Kentucky, but the marriage lasted less than two years. She impulsively married husband number three, a man named Philip Brown, in a Vegas ceremony in August of 1978 when she was 36 and he was 46. Following the wedding, Margaret moved with her children to Philip's eight-acre Illinois horse ranch, and that's where they actually had a second wedding reception a couple months later. But even with the double ceremonies, number three lasted less than a year, with Philip claiming emotional cruelty in their divorce papers. Ah. The biggest issue seemed to be that four months into the marriage, Margaret said that she deeply regretted not staying in Las Vegas. Apparently, when they got married there, she got a taste for it. She wanted to move west. He was very happy at his ranch in Illinois. How is he going to yeah. move if you're a ranch man, you know? So, yeah, that was the, the biggest issue they seemed to have. And after their divorce, Margaret did indeed move to Las Vegas. This time, she was seeking a spouse with financial security. Just like some of those intrepid miners that moved west to strike gold, Margaret did get lucky. Her sister set her up with a wealth her sister set her up with a wealthy businessman named Robert Kraft, and the two hit it off and got married in April of 1982. Robert moved Margaret and her kids into a huge mansion worth $800,000, which is about $2.3 million in today's money. But despite that, the marriage fell apart in less than four years. The divorce papers alleged that while Robert was on a hunting trip, Margaret left him without warning, taking basically everything that wasn't nailed down, including furniture and family heirlooms. Oh, oh my God. I feel like we've seen that that move before. <laughs> yeah. I love it when they're like, uh, pretty much everything that isn't nailed down is gone. Like the hapless husband comes home and there's no wife, no furniture, no more love. So the funniest thing about the situation, though, is that Margaret herself participates in the 2020 episode that I mentioned from last year. And she, honest to God, says, I think I was very easy to be married to because I'm such a people pleaser. <laughs> she says, none of my husbands ever asked me for a divorce. I was the one who had to bring it up. What? 
What? If you've been divorced four times, I doubt it's because you are the easiest person to be married to. Because you're a people pleaser, honey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The 2020 is worth watching for Margaret alone. She's Amazing. got some good lines, guys. Yeah. So the divorce was finalized in May of 1987, which was an altogether miserable time for Margaret. Due to the prenup, she only squeezed 11 grand out of her wealthy ex. Now her kids were totally grown and they were out of the house. So she was not only lonely, but I guess the kids weren't having such an easy time out there. So they had their own adult child problems. Okay. Her father died that same year and she had to undergo a hysterectomy. Oh, no. Yeah, that's a bad year. So she joined a church for spiritual guidance and to find a community. And she ended up finding much more than that when she met the now older but still handsome Ron Rudin shortly after joining the congregation. (laughs) Margaret explained that she had wanted a macho manly guy. And because, for whatever reason, she thought that men who wore cowboy boots were macho, she told a friend the next man she dated better be wearing cowboy boots. Is this around the time of the village people as well or? Well, this is 1987. So I think this was like Midnight Cowboy. There was a big resurgence in interest in country and Western. My parents said that they used to go like country line dancing. They got together in like the very late 70s, early 80s. So I guess the the 80s, there was a comeback, you know? Yeah, the macho. I also think in Nevada, it might just be all the time, you know? So anyway, she was like, the next guy date better be a cowboy boot wearing macho guy. And that same friend was in church with her. And she was like, hey, there's this guy checking you out from a couple pews back. And he's wearing cowboy boots. And he's pretty macho. Yep. And that, of course, turned out to be Ron Rudin, who, by the way, did dress like Johnny Cash his entire life. It wasn't just his Cadillacs that had to be black. His whole outfit was black. Amazing. So Margaret claimed that Ron was so smitten with her that he began proposing to her only a couple weeks into the relationship. I mean, if it's your fifth go around, you know, why wait? (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Yeah. Ron's friends and family all actually really took to Margaret. They thought she was beautiful. She was well-dressed. She was classy, but she was also down to earth. They sincerely hoped that the fifth time would be the charm for both Margaret and Ron. Margaret was drawn to Ron. He had a real swagger. But she later said that some people, I don't know if it was at church or otherwise, warned her that he was a womanizer with potentially shady business dealings. Hmm. Margaret said if she had trusted her gut, maybe she wouldn't have married him. But she said at the time, she was very lonely. She had never been alone her entire life. She lived with her parents. She got married at 18. She had kids. And even between her marriages, her kids had been in her life and they had been living with her. So she had found herself alone for the very first time. And she said that maybe she made a rash decision to marry Ron right away. So she did marry him in September 11th of 1987 after only knowing him for a couple short months. It didn't take long for there to be problems in the marriage. As we've said, getting married very quickly after meeting is a what, Andy? (laughs) That's a major red flag. 
That is a love murder red flag on the field, even though I am guilty of it, which is fun. In the discussion group, we talked about which red flags we were. (laughs) (laughs) Which love murder red flags are you? (laughs) So shout out to all my girls that married way too fast, but are still in loving long-term marriages. Way to go, gals. And I'm sure there's guys out there too, but there's only gals on the discussion group. (laughs) So immediately there's some problems. So I guess that Ron hadn't drank as much during their courtship period. And she didn't know the extent to which he did drink until after they were married. And she said that this made him more paranoid about security, which goes hand in hand with what an ex-wife said too, about the not wanting to leave the house after nine. Yeah. Especially after he'd been drinking. The only ex-wife that said that drinking wasn't a problem was Carolyn, wife number two. She was like, yeah, he has a couple cocktails, but he's like, fine, he's fun. He's a sweet drunk. You know, everybody else said it became problematic. Okay. She also didn't know really all about Peggy and what had happened. So they got married in September. We're going into the holiday season. By that December, he was getting very surly. He's very depressed. He was very anxious. And she had bought him a bunch of Christmas presents. She's all excited for her first, you know, married Christmas with him. And he was very scroogey about the whole thing because he was, you know, in his feels about his third wife, which is totally fair, but you can't take it out on your current partner, you know? And like all of this, she could have potentially forgiven. She says, you know, I could have dealt with the moodiness. I could have dealt with the drinking. What she could not deal with was infidelity. Then she's really not a people pleaser. (laughs) She's not a people pleaser. Not a people pleaser when you're married to a womanizer. And I think because of those comments, she was already a little bit on high alert about this. So she used to pick up the other line when he was talking on the phone to see who he was talking to. That's naughty. Very, very naughty. And so one night while he had been drinking, I think she had been drinking a little too, she picked up the phone and she heard him talking to a woman and it was clear that they knew each other very well. He was saying something like that they hadn't had sex in a while, like the him and his wife, which she said, Margaret said was a lie. She was like, we have sex like every day. I don't know what he's talking about. And then the woman was like, oh, well, you know, I would be with you or something. And he's like, well, how would you rate yourself in bed one to 10? And she's like, oh, I'm at least a nine. And so they're having this conversation (sighs) and Margaret's listening to the whole thing. She's getting more and more irate. And then he eventually gets off the phone and he comes in the room and he's like, how's my baby? How's my girl? Like being all sweet and loving towards her. And she's like, you mother effort. So she loses it. And Margaret ended up pulling a gun on Ron in their bedroom. Uh, I think he like went to the bedroom. She went, got the gun and came in and threatened him. So he managed to get up and grab it. But in the struggle, it went off and the bullet ended up piercing an oil painting that they had hanging in the bedroom. And then he, I guess, managed to successfully wrestle it away from her, but he also ended up shooting a hole in their headboard of the red as well. Oh my God, they're a mess. Mess, 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 mess. And copious drinking and firearms are a really bad combination. I don't think I need to tell any of you that. So Margaret tearfully packed her bags. She said she was gone. She's leaving. She said that Ron begged her to stay. And she later wrote in her diary the following. 
Like a fool, I believed none of this wouldn't have happened if he hadn't been so drunk. So I should forget that he flipped out emotionally, even when he's not drunk. The next day she wrote, I am numb at this point, And I don't know why I've been treated this way by Ron and why I can't just leave him. And then a day later, she wrote, Ron professes his undying love again. When do we get off this roller coaster? Please, God. Ron's problem, Margaret would later tell a newspaper reporter, was exactly what his longtime bookkeeper and secretary, Sharon Melton, and others had seen, a controlling nature. He wanted somebody who would work in his office, who would be his wife, a cook, a housekeeper, Margaret told the paper. I was looking for some relief. At the same time, Margaret, it would be alleged, was as much of a control freak as her husband, perhaps even more so. This would not be the first time she had listened in on her husband's phone calls, and it would not be the last. With these two strong personalities clashing, at least once in an argument that could have been lethal, something had to give. So yeah, this is not a good situation and it did not improve. So when things went from bad to worse, Ron actually filed for divorce, which is not what you said on the 2020, Margaret. Looks like Ron filed for divorce, you liar, liar. So he ended up filing for divorce only 12 days after their first anniversary And the couple did briefly separate. So Margaret did move out for a little while. And after she moved out, Ron noticed that one of his guns, a 22 caliber Ruger pistol with a silencer, had gone missing. In October of 1988, Ron wrote to the ATF, which is the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and said the following. During a recent bat compliance inspection, I discovered that a Ruger 22 semi-automatic with suppressor was missing. I was aware of this fact several weeks before the inspection, but I thought I had misplaced the weapon. At inspection time, it was still missing. I was advised to contact your office to report. I have a suspicion the gun was packed away or taken by person or persons unknown during my wife's packing her furniture and personal belongings for storage at that or about that time due to a separation and pending divorce after a marriage of one year. If by chance the weapon turns up, I will notify your office immediately. Well, you know what Chekhov says, if a gun appears in the first act, it must go off by the third. So keep that in mind. Oh, my God. And unlike uh, last week where we butchered the Dean Martin quote, I actually know that's Chekhov. (laughs) Did you double check it off? (laughs) Queen, queen of the puns over here. (laughs) Uh, So, well, the gun never showed back up. Margaret certainly did. The chaotic couple reconciled only a couple months later, and Margaret moved back into the home in May of 1989. But again, nothing was better, and the police were even called to the house after an altercation between Ron and Margaret. Like I said, both of these guys are big personalities. They're both vying for control, and they both have their own paranoias. He's paranoid of somebody coming in and hurting him clearly. She's paranoid about his cheating. It's it's not a recipe for success here. So Ron's friends began to worry about him at this point because they had once really liked Margaret, but her behavior was turning more erratic. And she also started bad-mouthing him to his employees, to his friends, to his own family. Not okay. So, 
yeah, not okay. The whole goodwill that they had, you know, given her at the beginning was completely gone. And to the point where they were actually getting concerned for Ron. So they told him to divorce her and he started laughing and he's like, well, the other day she said that she'd divorce me if I gave her $50,000. And his friends were like, take it. It's a deal. Ron, just take it. (laughs) See, that's her doing her people pleasing. There we go. I'll leave you just for the price of 50 grand. She really should be asking for more. I think so too. Yeah. And so, like I said, Margaret was also always worried about him cheating on her. And, you know, she was kind of right. He did absolutely cheat on her with at least one affair partner, maybe more. So in her paranoia, she decided to keep closer tabs on him. In the spring of 1991, she went to a store called The Spy Factory. Uh Uh Uh-huh. And this place got shut down for being illegal, by the way. In Vegas? In Vegas, yeah, because they had all this illegal, like, bugging equipment that they were selling to civilians. And she decided to bug both Ron's private office at the realty company as well as Secretary Sharon's office. I think she had a feeling that Sharon and Ron were having an affair, which did not seem like it was happening, unless Sharon was really good about hiding it after the fact. The equipment was voice activated. So basically what happened is as soon as somebody walked in the room and started talking, whether on the phone or having a conversation, it would turn on and it would transmit the conversation to a receiver that Margaret had in her closet. Oh my God. Uh Uh-huh. And she could either listen to it live or she could record it for later. Okay. So this is obviously not a healthy marriage here. By 1993, both parties seemed absolutely miserable. Margaret told her sister that she believed that Ron was in poor health and she was just waiting for him to die to get his inheritance. Well, Ron disclosed to his financial advisor that he had been seeing medical specialists in Utah and Arizona because he was concerned that Margaret had been poisoning him. Which if she was, maybe that's why she believed he was in poor health. Oh my God. What would make you think that their marriage is not going well? It's always interesting to me too when somebody is like, I think my spouse is poisoning me, but they stay in the marriage and they yeah. stay living with the person. I mean, I don't, maybe they're just like, are we really going to like get divorced and marry a sixth person? A sixth person? Well, despite this, or maybe because he was scared of her, Ron gave in to Margaret's request that she get to open her own antique store in the same strip mall as his realty office in 1994. So she can spy on him better. I think so. I also think that this was like a lifelong goal of hers. I also think that she was anticipating that he would someday hopefully be out of the picture. So she needed to set herself up with a nice little business. While buying antiques for the shop, Margaret became friendly with an antiques picker named Bruce Hornibach, who began to get concerned for Ron's welfare after Margaret repeatedly badmouthed Ron and told him that she was just waiting for Ron to die. Girl, you gotta stop going around saying that. I know, keep it to yourself, milady. Yeah. So apparently one day she seemed upset and he was talking to her and she's like, well, turns out I was mistaken and Ron is not going to die. His health isn't as bad as I thought it was. And now I just really don't know what to do. 
And it was said in such a way that seemed marginally sinister enough that Bruce began really getting worried for Ron, who he didn't even know at this point. He did know Sharon. So Sharon owned a antique store herself, which is random. It was like a family antique store. And so Bruce knew Sharon because of the antiques business. So he went to Sharon and was like, hey, I think your boss's wife is going to kill him. And Sharon's like, well, why don't you go talk to him? I'll set up a meeting for you. And apparently Bruce went in there and he's like, this is weird. You're a stranger. I'm so sorry. But she keeps making all these comments about how you're going to die. and She's going to get your money. It's making me really uncomfortable. And I want to tell you to watch out, dude. And he said that he was surprised because Ron didn't seem at all shocked. He later said that he was just very reflective and not at all surprised. That's so sad. So while Margaret's suspicions that Ron was in poor health had clearly not been true, her suspicions about his fidelity or lack thereof turned out to be very true, unfortunately. In late 1994, Ron struck up an affair with a former employee named Sue Lyles, a middle-aged mother in an unhappy marriage herself. When Margaret got wind of the affair, probably through her spyware, (laughs) she wrote two letters to each of Sue's children. Now, one of Sue's children is a son who's 25, so that's fine. But her daughter was only 12 years old. (laughs) And how they figured out that it was Margaret was because Margaret always called her daughter by the wrong name. So it was actually addressed to the name that she always called her daughter, not her daughter's actual name. That's like the jinx mistake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They were also, you know, postmarked from Las Vegas, December 8th, 1994. So she didn't sign it. They're supposed to be anonymous, but it seemed pretty clear that they were from Margaret. And this is what the letter said. (gasps) To the 25-year-old or the 12-year-old? Well, luckily only the 25-year-old opened his. Okay, guys. Because this is a pretty brutal letter to read about your mother. The 25-year-old was actually in graduate school, but he was home for the holidays. So he unfortunately opened this letter that was addressed to him and it said... And I think she tried to disguise herself by having very poor grammar and spelling. So it's kind of hard to read, but here it goes. Or she has poor grammar and bad spelling. Or or maybe she just (laughs) really does have poor grammar and spelling. I don't know. Your mother has been screwing Ronald Rudin, the realtor, for over a year. Wow, that alliteration. (laughs) The alliteration. She meets him at vacant houses he owns during her work time, and she screws him on dirty carpet floors. He brags to his friends and laughs at her because he tells everyone he does not have to get a motel room and he does not have to buy her lunch even to get to eat her pussy as much as he wants. Oh my God. Wait, is she married? Is <laughs> She's married too. She's married. Oh no. Because she will screw him anywhere as long as he wants and as many times as he wants and keep the secret from his wife and her husband. Now this gets weird. You are being told now because the time is now to be prepared for a big scandal. Six months ago, the Washington, D.C. and the Las Vegas section of the IRS investigations was told and supplied with dates, times, pictures, and proven to them your mother was screwing around on government taxpayer expense time. To prove the point, duplicates were sent to the TV station that does the public interest exposures. To date, they have undertaken the follow-up on their own because they investigation sensational-type exposés. 
And with the videotapes they have made of your mother and other governmental employees that this scandal is ready to spotlight, you will need to warn your father, too, of what to expect. Wow. Okay, so you, when you read her diary entries, I thought they were kind of weird. Like, you even had a hard time reading them because they weren't grammatically normal. They were not grammatically correct, but this, yeah. this took on a whole different level. Yeah. yeah she, I mean, that's maybe how she's responding in anger, you know? Here. Yeah. So, of course, her son is like, Mom, what the hell is this? And she took it and she's like, I think I know exactly who wrote this letter. So she had a rendezvous with Ron, showed him the letters. And he was like, this is 100% my wife. I don't know how she found out about us. I'm so sorry. But I do think she wants a divorce. She just wants to get my Lee Canyon property in the divorce. So this Lee Canyon property at the time was just acreage, but he already had another developer interested in making it a resort with like fancy country club and everything like that. So it was going to be worth millions, this land. So he's like, I think she wants the land in the divorce. And this she's using this to kind of like blackmail me into giving her what she wants. And that's what he told Sue Lyles. And this all happened in mid-December 1994. So three days after Sue showed Ron this letter, it was Saturday, December 17th. And it was also the day of Margaret's antique store opening. So it's the grand opening party. So Ron has to go to this party and everyone who attended could tell that it was very tense between the couple. Ron did come, but he was very grumpy. He didn't talk to anyone except for Margaret's sister, Donna. He pointedly did not talk to Margaret and he left early in a bad mood. The next day was a Sunday and Ron went to Secretary Sharon's antique store where she was working that day. And she said that he browsed for a little bit, but he seemed really upset. He kind of wanted to talk about how bad things were with Margaret. He complained about her for a little bit. And then he's like, well, whatever. I'll see you the next day. I'll see you tomorrow on Monday for work. Bye. But no one would ever see Ronald Rudin alive ever again, except for maybe his Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. Honestly, everything from inventory management, being able to pull reports for tax season, which we're coming up to, and being able to pick out your own, you know, website design, customize it to your liking, give it your own personality and flavor. Shopify really has it all. That's Awesome. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility 
powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. Did you know that in the last year, rates of anxiety and depression have doubled in the U.S.? These days, it can take weeks to get a traditional therapy appointment. And that's where Cerebral comes in. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Mental health is something that affects all of us, whether personally or someone who is close to us. Yeah, thank goodness we're all talking about it more. It's really such an important issue. Absolutely. And Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door, which means you can skip the pharmacy lines. On top of that, the service includes unlimited messaging with your care team. I love that they're making healthcare affordable for everyone. Cerebral offers affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy and which are available with or without insurance. Yep, Cerebral is in-network for several insurers and they're working every day to grow their partnerships. Plus, even if you're out of network, they'll provide you with the necessary paperwork so you can easily submit a claim. I'm excited to share that our listeners can receive 65% off their first month of medication management and care counseling at GetCerebral.com slash lovemurder. Go to GetCerebral.com slash lovemurder for 65% off your first month. That's just a total of $30 to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. So on Monday morning, Ron's employees stood locked out of the realty office and they were very, very confused about this. Ron was never, ever late for work. According to Ron's employees, they tried to call Margaret, but she refused to speak to them, ducking their calls. And then when they confronted her at her house, they said that she refused to call the police. Okay, so she's being a shady bitch. Yes. She, however, told 2020 that she called the police herself Monday morning when she realized that Ron hadn't come home. And she said that she was told by the police that she had to wait 24 or 48 hours or something. She couldn't remember exactly, but she was like, I was told to wait. So they're lying, essentially. That's what she's saying. They're saying she's lying. Who do you think is actually lying? Well, I think that the police only had a record of the employees going to the police. So it would look like Margaret was lying about this. Eventually, the employees went to police themselves, who, of course, called Margaret immediately. Margaret's sister Donna noticed that Margaret didn't seem very concerned at all about her husband's disappearance. And the police were kind of picking up on that as well. Naturally, they wanted to know what Margaret had been up to the day before and what her last interaction with Ron had been. Margaret said that she had worked at the antique store for most of the day. She went home at 6.30 p.m. where she found Ron. The two had discussed going to a movie when she got off work, but Margaret claimed that Ron said nothing good was playing and he no longer wanted to go to the movies with her. She said that he did seem a little bit depressed, but that was normal for him in December. And she had asked him if he wanted her to prepare him dinner, but he said no. 
So she's like, okay, well, if you don't want to go to a movie and you don't want dinner, do you mind if I just go back to work then? Because I have a lot of stuff to, you know, inventory and straighten out the brand new antique store. And he reportedly said back to her, no, you can go back to work because I've got somebody else to go to the movies with me anyway. What? And she's, yeah, she said that they had this running joke. Like anytime he wanted to do something and she didn't want to do it, he'd be like, well, it's a good thing I put that personal ad up because I have a a woman who'd be very happy to go with me or something. So she said that she just laughed off this inside joke that they had. That's only funny if you actually aren't sleeping with someone else. Yeah. (laughs) It's just sad otherwise and kind of mean on the other person's side. So she said, because she was responding to a joke, she said, hope she likes your type of movies and left. So she said that after this, she ran some errands. She dropped off a computer part for a friend. She went grocery shopping and she called Ron at 9 p.m. and said that he sounded fine and that the last thing he said was that he loved her. She said that she went back to the antique store and she worked in the shop until one in the morning when she stopped by the CPA's office, which a CPA in the United States is an accountant. And the CPA's office was down in the same strip mall that, you know, all their businesses are in. Wait, she stopped by at 1 a.m.? At 1 a.m. They didn't know this woman. And so she explained to the cops that she did this. So they obviously check the CPA and the CPA did confirm this. She was like, it was very, very strange. So the CPA ran her own business and she often, you know, worked into the night when there's, you know, tax deadlines and (laughs) her husband worked at the casino. So he had gotten off his shift and he'd come by to keep her company while she was finishing up stuff. And so they're like kind of having conversations. She's doing some work. And Margaret just rolls in at one in the morning and they have never met her before. They knew her as the landlord's wife. So they knew of her. And she just introduces herself. She says, I was working late. I saw y'all are working late. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee at the 24-hour coffee shop around the corner. Do you need some? They're like, no, we're fine. And they think that's the end of it. And instead, she stays for 30 minutes and has very awkward conversation with them. (laughs) About? Uh, Just about, you know, their business, their work. She thinks that she might need to hire somebody. It's just, it's going on for a really long time for that hour of the evening, you know? Yeah. And she like never brought up coffee again. Like, and when she left, she didn't say that she was going to the coffee shop. She's like, well, I guess I better get to the antique store. And it's like, well, wait, you've been here for a half hour. Weren't you on your way to get coffee? What is going on here? Yeah. It definitely seemed weird to those people. And it certainly seemed to the police and to ourselves. I'm imagining, Andy, you also feel this way. Alibi. Exactly. 100%. So in her police interview, Margaret admitted that the marriage had had its ups and downs. (laughs) To say the least. She consented to a quick search of the house. So she's like, I have nothing to hide. Go ahead. Look in the house. The police officer reported that there were no obvious signs of violence. The master bedroom was neat with a giant glamour shot of Margaret hanging over the bed. Shut the fuck up. I'm not sure if it was like a glamour. They said it's a portrait, but they didn't say whether it was a painting. So I don't know if it's a glamour portrait painting or like an actual like studio glamour shot portrait. Or like one of the ones where you dress up like old timey. (laughs) I don't think it was that. I don't think it was like she was like dressed as a saloon girl with a gun. But speaking of guns, they also noticed that there was an entire room devoted to Ron's arsenal. He had 
I think, hundreds of guns. It was a lot, a lot, a lot of guns. So scary. But he was a collector. He was a known collector, which is why the ATF knew who he was. And that's why he had to tell them if he was missing firearms. Yep. And I don't think it's like super uncommon in Nevada for people to have a ton of guns. I think it's like, it's, you know, I mean, it's common all over the United States, but definitely in, you know, different places out West, you know? Yeah. It still doesn't make it less terrifying. Yeah. So they're like, okay, there's a lot of guns in this house, but they didn't see anything like they didn't see immediately any signs of blood or any disturbances. However, in the ongoing interview, one of the detectives noted a slip when Margaret referred to Ron in the past tense. Oh, God, they always do this. It's like, keep your shit together. She further raised eyebrows by completely remodeling the home in the weeks after Ron's disappearance and also removing articles of his clothing and his furniture from the home. Oh, my God, girlfriend. That's before she even knows what happened to him. He's not declared dead at that point. So Margaret would later say that she was very worried that Ron would not come back. She was worried about how she was going to make money. At this point, there were three trustees to his wealth and they could give Margaret access to his funds or not. And so she said she was a little worried about the situation. And so she had decided that while he was gone, she was going to move everything out of his house, sleep in the guest room portion of the house and make it a tea room. A tea room? Like a business. Like she's going to make this some sort of commercial tea shop where people can come in and drink their tea and then they can go over to the antique store. But you have to remember that this house is behind a fortress-like fence with razor wire on top. This is not like you're going to get foot traffic here. Wait, in his house? In his house, she wants to start With all the guns. Yes. Even on the 2020, I'm pretty sure she's like, it would have been a lovely idea. I think it would have been a great success. Okay, so she's out of her mind. Yeah, or she's really reaching here. So, yeah, the cops began to think that they might not find Ron alive after all when his beloved Cadillac was discovered parked behind a gentleman's club called Crazy Horse 2. <gasps> Have you been there? Oh, no. I've been to Crazy Horse in Paris, not in Me Vegas. too. I yeah. love Crazy Horse in Paris. I know. It's the best. So, yeah, this is Crazy Horse 2 in Las Vegas. And it was discovered late night, December 23rd, 1994. The car was absolutely filthy. It looked like it had been off-roading. It was covered with dust and grime. There were footprints all over the interior as well, front seat and back seat. And anyone who knew Ron even remotely knew that there was no way Ron would have willingly ever left his car in this condition. Yeah. Furthermore, even Ron's exes acknowledged that though he had a lot of faults, he was absolutely not the type to frequent strip clubs. The owner of the club and the dancers all confirmed that they had never seen Ron, not the night of his disappearance and not ever. Wow. So not the best place to park their car, obviously. Yeah. If somebody was trying to make it look like, you know, he made some bad decisions after a night at a strip club, they were failing. So while the cops are trying to piece together the clues, Margaret was already fighting with the trustees of Ron's estate to get access to all of his bank accounts before the man had even been determined to have died. Yeah. Does she not understand that this doesn't look good? Does not look good. She talks about this in the 2020, basically saying like, 
Ron always had control of all the money. So when he went missing, I was in a really bad financial situation and I wasn't in control of it. And so there was nothing I could do. So yes, I understood that it looks bad, but I needed money to live. So they needed to give me some, you know? So the trustees are not willing to just fork over some money or access to his accounts to Margaret, but they try to look into his will and all of his various estate planning to kind of figure out what they should do or, you know, prepare for the worst in case he, you know, was deceased. Yeah. So they discovered that Ron was worth between five and $11 million, though most of it was tied up in real estate, which is why there's that discrepancy because at any given time, it can be worth more or less. And if it was at the top end worth $11 million, that would be more like $20 million in today's money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. A lot. It's, and it's also because it's tied up in real estate, it's not just like cold hard cash that they can like give to her. No, exactly. 60%, as much as $7 million was supposed to go to Margaret in his will with the remainder split between the three trustees and their families. Now, none of this was surprising to the trustees who had been forewarned of Ron's plans. What was shocking was that a directive was attached to the will that read as follows. To my fiduciaries, I request that in the event my death is caused by violent means, for example, gunshot, knife, or a violent automobile accident, extraordinary steps be taken in investigating the true cause of the death. Should said death be caused indirectly or directly by a beneficiary of my estate, said beneficiary shall be totally excluded from my estate and of any trusts I may have in existence. Dated the 27th of April, 1991. So he's basically pointing the finger at Margaret from beyond the grave. Margaret was desperate now. She was getting closed out of all of Ron's accounts. Like I said, the trust refused to give her any money. She had the police breathing down her neck. Donna, Margaret's sister, recounted a story about how the two of them were being interviewed again in the antique store and how Margaret kept butting into Donna's interview to mention odd details like, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, Ron always wears black pants. Oh, yes, and Ron never takes off his cowboy boots. And so later, Donna is like, what was that all about? And she was like, well, you know, in this previous interview, I accidentally referred to Ron in the past tense. It was a weird slip. Oh, my God. I don't want them to think that, you know, I know anything or I did anything to Ron. So I had to, like, interject all of these present tense uh details about Ron. So they think that it was just a weird slip. So at that point, Donna was like, wait, 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 wait. This doesn't mean that you actually do know anything about where Ron is or what happened to him, right? And she said at that point, Margaret got really frustrated with her, turned totally cold and said, Donna, I don't give a shit. That doesn't even answer the question. No, that's what she said on the stand too. Donna later testifies to this, essentially suggesting that she didn't give a shit that Ron was missing. She didn't give a shit what happened to Ron. Is That's how Donna took it. Donna also said that when Margaret knew that the police officers or detectives rather were in the realty office interviewing his staff, she would go home and listen on the spy receiver to see if she could learn about what was going on in the investigation. Oh my God, that is so illegal. 
so illegal. Well, she might not have given a shit back then, but she was about to give a shit because Margaret had been merely a person of interest in a missing persons case. But when the fishermen discovered Ron's remains in late January, she was upgraded to a suspect in his murder. So right away, the police suspected that the remains were indeed Ron, the Ron bracelet, somewhat giving it away. Uh Uh-huh. And this was confirmed with dental records. As to why the skull had been separated from the body, like you so astutely asked in the introduction, Andy, there were two theories. The medical examiner believed it had been the work of coyotes due to the gnaw marks present on the skull. And also because, fun fact, apparently coyotes like essentially playing soccer with human skulls. Okay, did not need that information on this Sunday. Dr. Robert Jordan of the Clark County Coroner's Office said, Coyotes have a particular delight in separating the skulls from bodies and rolling them across the desert. I've seen it a number of times. So that is a fun detail that I absolutely did not know (laughs) previously. I'm surprised Um, you didn't know about that with your farm experience. Well, we don't often have dead bodies on my farm, even though we have plenty of coyotes, Andrea. So, yes, that's what the medical examiner thought. The detectives were of the opinion that the head had been removed from the body to make Ron's large frame fit better in the antique trunk. Oh, my God. It was in an antique trunk antique trunk yes remember at the beginning that there was like the burned out remains of an antique trunk no like i the remember metal frame. yeah yep. i remember yep. but i like didn't think about that with her antique store yeah so they think that he was decapitated after death but prior to being put in this trunk to fit and that maybe they had gotten rid of the body in the cover of darkness And so maybe either they didn't notice that the head had rolled out of the fire at some point because it did have some slight burn marks or they had purposely set it up totemically for some reason, you know? So that's what the detectives thought. In any case, the charred remains did indeed belong to Ron and he had died by three bullets to the back of the head. Luckily for law enforcement, the bullets were still in the skull. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And they were common 22 caliber bullets that were lead-coated and copper-colored. This would come in very handy if the detectives were able to find the murder weapon. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Is it his that was missing? Perhaps. (laughs) When the detectives told Margaret the Grim News, their suspicions were further aroused by her curious lack of response. So they go to do the worst part of a homicide detective's job or missing persons detective's job, which is to have to tell the loved one that their, you know, close partner or, you know, family member or best friend is actually deceased and not missing. And instead of an emotional response, she was just completely blank and then kind of just was like, oh, well, thank you for telling me, you know, and went about her day, which is obviously very Anything odd. else? Yeah, exactly. Margaret herself says that that response was just because she was in shock and that's how she responds to shocking information. She just shuts down. So Ron's disappearance had been a point of interest for the media, but when his body was discovered, the story really blew up. 
After seeing the news on TV, a woman called the police and told them that they needed to speak to her son. Her son was a young man named Augustine Lovato, who did odd jobs through an employment agency called Labor Express. He told the police that on December 20th, 1994, two days after Ron failed to show up for work, he had been contacted to work for Margaret as a day laborer. Throughout the next few weeks, Augustine visited the house four or five times to do odd jobs for Margaret. On his second day there, he was asked to clean a carpet in the laundry room where it appeared that somebody had unsuccessfully attempted to get dark brown stains out of the rug. Mm. When he returned in January, he was surprised to find that Margaret wanted to move Ron's bed and furniture out of the master bedroom. He knew at this point that her husband was missing. She had mentioned it like the very first time that he was there. So he thought it was very unusual that she was already getting rid of all of their bedroom furniture. Of course. uh, While he is still just missing. He reported that there were two large dark brown stains on the carpeting underneath the bed. Margaret told him that she was replacing the carpet. And at the time, she said that she was going to have him cut out the stained part and they were going to cover that with an oriental rug is what she originally said. And then later she goes back and tells him that she's actually going to be coming into some money. Hmm. And that she has now decided that she can afford to rip out the whole carpet and replace it with wall to wall carpeting. So the first time though, he's cutting out this spot and he said that he started gagging because it was like this dark brown flaky gooey substance that was caked on the carpet. And he said it smelled so rank that he thought he was going to be sick. There was like a sickly smell to it. So gross. He also said that he noticed reddish brown splatters on the portrait of Margaret that had gone over the bed. But on the next visit, the portrait had been cleaned and moved to the guest room. So he no longer saw those splotches. Augustine also claimed to have witnessed a red brownish blob of material in the bathtub drain. So by now, Augustine, knowing that Ron was missing, became alarmed for good reason. It took him a while, I have to say. On his last day of work, Margaret gave him a package and asked him to put it in the mail for her. He had actually very quickly forgotten. He was on his way home. He didn't mail it then. He forgot about it. So when the news broke that Ron's body had been discovered... He told his mother, oh my gosh, all this stuff happened. This is the lady whose husband was just found murdered. And I also never mailed a package for her. It's just sitting in the back of my car right now. So his mother at that point was like, you're not mailing that package. Keep it for the police. And I'm calling the police right now. We're getting you an interview. You have to tell them everything you know. The cops were finally getting somewhere. And though they still had some big questions, namely, how did a small woman like Margaret haul Ron, who weighed 220 pounds, in a pretty heavy chest to the car and then down a ravine? I mean, this is not a wheelie suitcase that we're talking about. Yeah. So they didn't know that side of it. They were like, there has to be an accomplice. And the answer to that question came in the package that Margaret had been sending to her mother that she had asked Augustine to send. Enclosed in the package were some like lotions and toiletries that I guess Margaret had bought for her mother, as well as a letter about how the investigation was going. But there was also an eight by 10 glossy headshot of a handsome, dark haired man with a movie star smile and a postcard from Israel. The postcard was addressed to Margaret and it told her how much he missed her. It was signed Love Yehuda. 
So 38-year-old Yehuda Sharon was an Israeli man who claimed to have been self-employed in two jobs at this point. One job, he said, was writing computer software, and the other was selling oils to churches for religious ceremonies. Now, the authorities would come to realize that Yehuda also seemed to have a size business financially advising older women, even though he had no qualifications to do so. (laughs) And they actually suspected that he was some sort of gigolo. And like, he he billed them. Yeah. Yeah. to say he's helping them with his cock. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Yehuda and Margaret had met in December of 1992 at a country club, but the relationship really picked up in 1994 when Yehuda was 38 years old and Margaret was 49. When interviewed by the police, Margaret's sister Donna said the following. As best as she could recall, her older sister, Margaret, had first mentioned the name Yehuda Sharon in the summer before Ron disappeared in about August of 1994. She would say things like how wonderful he made her feel, how intelligent that he was, how beautiful that he made her feel, how much fun he was, Donna said. Things that were so special about him. Donna said Margaret gave the distinct impression that they had a love relationship and that her sister certainly cared a great deal about him. But Donna couldn't recall seeing them together. She also didn't know anything else about Yehuda, what he did for a living, or how he'd even met Margaret. I guess a little what's good for the gander is good for the goose, eh, Margaret? (laughs) The police interviewed Yehuda, who vehemently denied any sort of romance, as did Margaret. But they were pretty certain that he had been an accomplice or at least had knowledge of Ron's murder. But he did have an alibi for the night of Ron's disappearance. He was with a new girlfriend that he had met just four days before Ron went missing. But he had also rented a van on Monday at 9 p.m., the same day that Ron didn't show up for work. After asking the people at the rental car company to remove the back seats, and he claimed that he did this because he was transporting pallets of his holy oil bottles and that he was bringing them to a church or a distribution center or something in California. But when he was asked to provide confirmation of the delivery by the police, Yehuda claimed that the weather had been so bad that it was apparently pouring rain that he had driven halfway to California and then turned off by the bad weather, turned around and drove all the way back without ever delivering the holy oil bottles. I mean, it's kind of half true. Yes. And coincidentally, the mileage that was on the van when he returned it to the rental company was pretty darn close to what you'd need to get out to Nelson Landing and back where Ron's body was found. Yeah. Halfway to California. Mm hmm. (laughs) Meanwhile, the police were tailing Margaret and caught her throwing out trash in a parking lot of a Circle K. Girlfriend! Girlfriend! In the bag of trash that she threw away was unopened lamp oil, which, of course, could be used to generate flames, (laughs) and a hiking map to the area where Ron's body had been discovered. Oh, my God. So at this point, they get a search warrant for the Rudin's home, and Luminol indicated that there was the presence of blood underneath the newly installed carpet near the headboard, on the box spring, and there was even flecks on the ceiling. And don't forget her portrait. 
Yes. Well, they couldn't find the portrait. The portrait was missing at this point. So she got rid of the portrait, sounds like. They also found blood evidence in the vacuum and in the bathroom drain where Augustine had seen the brackish goo. They also combed through the inventory at Margaret's antique store, and lo and behold, there was a record of a large trunk being inventoried, but it was not in the shop, and nor was there any record of it ever being sold. (laughs) Donna, at this point, was growing suspicious of her sister and confronted her head on. When she asked point blank, like, she was like, We haven't talked about this at all. It is insane that you don't want to know who killed your husband. You have to talk about it. Like, who do you think did it? And she was like, oh, you know, I think I think it was the mob. That's what Margaret said. And apparently in response to that, Donna said, tell me, who got into your high security house surrounded by dogs, shot and killed Ron in your bedroom, removed him, cleaned up the room so you didn't notice anything amiss, drove him 40 miles into the desert, decapitated and burned him, and brought his car back into town. Margaret, does that sound like the mob to you? Does that sound like a random street crime? Does that sound like burglary? Donna's brave. Yeah. Donna and her sister have some serious bad blood. You can tell in the 2020, Margaret's still holding a grudge. Uh, Yeah, obviously. They also said that um, Kel Surprise guys, spoiler alert, Margaret goes to trial at some point. But they said when Donna testified, she came in like all like quaffed up, like wearing all this makeup, her hair all nicely done. And like Margaret had been coming into court looking like kind of plain, you know, like the way they asked them to look so they look more innocent, you know. And like the next day she came in like with her hair done and makeup on. It was clearly a sibling rivalry here. Stop it. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah except one of you is a murderer. Thanks. Except for that small point. So yeah, Donna had some good points there. So Donna eventually recounted this all to the authorities. And she also tipped them off to the fact that Margaret had been secretly bugging Ron's office. And they found that equipment as well. However, all of this evidence is still largely circumstantial. So they needed to get Yehuda to flip on Margaret. In a deal that the judge would later criticize, they offered Yehuda full immunity, even though they had no idea what he had to say or what had really happened. Whoa. Yeah, which is a bad idea for several reasons. Now, the reason that they did this, which I do kind of understand, was essentially they did interrogate Yehuda. They did eventually put him in front of a grand jury and he kept pleading the fifth. And so the reason you plead the fifth is because you don't want to incriminate yourself. Yeah. And they said, if we offer him full immunity, he has to answer the question because okay. he no longer is in fear of incriminating himself if he has full immunity. So this was their answer to that. So they're trying to work around. They give him full immunity, not knowing what he may or may not have done. And he still says nothing. <gasps> nothing. He doesn't change his story in iota, no matter How many times people come at him like, that story is ridiculous. This doesn't make sense. What were you doing this day? What's your relationship with Margaret? He sticks to his story and doesn't change a thing. Oh, my God. Which also, let's remember that he's Israeli. There's compulsory military service in Israel. So this guy is, you know, ex-Israeli army. Like, you're not going to get the same things out of him that you're going to get out of a normal jamoke off the street, you know? He's like... yeah buttoned up. He's dummied up. Yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, they are S-O-L. He's not saying anything. The evidence circumstantial. So they're now thinking that they might not be able to prosecute Margaret for her husband's murder. That's but then crazy. miraculously in July of 1996, a scuba diving instructor fished out the murder weapon, which was indeed a Ruger 22 semi-automatic pistol. Oh my God. From Lake Mead, which is about 25 miles outside of Las Vegas. And also, I guess, thank goodness for all of these sporting and fishing enthusiasts, huh? Seriously. So yeah, they find the same type of gun that Ron had reported missing all the way back in 1988. But unfortunately, it was not immediately connected to Ron's murder it was turned in to like the state crime lab and it was totally processed. And the interesting thing about this was that the gun had been completely wrapped up in like plastic wrap and tape and it had been very well preserved. They were able to get the gun out of the water and still be able to fire it. Wow. Yeah. And an interesting thing that happens later on too is that when they again have Yehuda in front of a grand jury, they're trying to get him to talk. And he basically at one point is like, well, okay, okay, okay. I might have some evidence or information that can lead to Margaret's conviction, but you guys have to give me a million dollars. And they're like, sweetie, that's not how it works. You just give us the information now. And he's like, well, maybe I don't. And they're like, what do you have to say? If you have the information, just tell us. And he's like, no, 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 million dollars. And they're like, well, we're not gonna give you a million dollars and then have it not pan out. And he's like, no, no, just hear me out. You put it in an escrow account and if the information I give you leads to her arrest, then I get the million dollars. And if it doesn't, you just get the money back. No big deal. And they're like, no. But some people suspect that he got rid of the gun and that he purposely wrapped it very carefully so that if he did need it later on to either bargain or apparently try to make money, that he would be able to point them to where the murder weapon was. Oh, my God. That's just speculation. We don't know for sure if that's what he was alluding to. <sighs> but this guy's a piece of work for sure, for sure. So anyways, it was processed. And while it's being processed, they did a test firing of it. And the criminologist noticed that when fired, the bullets that went through this particular gun left interesting groove marks. So it was kind of unique in that way. So they, you know, filed everything away. And when the authorities were moving forward with the grand jury indictment of Margaret in January of 1996, they sent the bullets that were found in Ron's skull to be processed by the state crime lab, the same one. And when the same criminologist saw the bullets that had been in Ron's skull come through, he was like, wait, this reminds me of something. And he realized that in the previous year, he had test fired those bullets and they had the same unique grooves in them. Okay. So he was able to go back, find the bullets, compare them to, you know, shots from the gun. And then they also did some more, you know, investigating and realized that it was the exact same gun that Ron had reported missing right down to the serial number. Wow. Yes. And now this comes up in court that he did not mention the serial number in his letter to the ATF. So they know it's his because it's licensed to him and the serial number is obviously on the gun. But it comes up in court later that he never mentioned that that gun was the exact serial number. So they're trying to say that it's potentially Oh possible my God, that's a that stretch. That wasn't guys. the same gun. It's super stretch, yes. 
So the detectives now believe that they have the full picture. Margaret stole the gun six years prior to her husband's murder. She stashed it away somewhere. And then, angry at Ron's infidelity, concerned about her own economic future, she murdered Ron in cold blood by shooting him in the back of the head in their bedroom, most likely while he slept. She then, either by herself or with the help of Yehuda, stuffed him in the trunk from her antique store, took him out to Nelson's Landing, burned the evidence, and eventually ditched the gun in Lake Mead, or Yehuda did. So a warrant was issued for Margaret's arrest, which is great. Like, this is it. This is the end. Huzzah! She's captured. We're going to go to trial. It's all gravy, right? Yep. Not even close. The (laughs) wily 53-year-old grandmother had gone on the run. When they went to arrest her, she was, poof, disappeared. What do you mean? So they weren't keeping eyes on her. They weren't keeping like regular tabs on her. So when the heat was getting serious, she just took off, man. And nobody knew where she was. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is even not really clear in the Michael Fleeman book exactly where she was or what she was doing. So I'm going by what she said in 2020 of what she was up to. I mean, really, how long, Andy, do you think a 53-year-old woman with no criminal background can remain on the lam? I mean, I think forever. (laughs) You know, you never discount those 53-year-old women. You're right. They've lived long enough to have some tricks. In fact, she was on the run for two and a half years. What? In which time she became the most wanted woman in America, making the television show America's Most Wanted, just like Sarah Jo Pender a few episodes ago. Oh, my God. So... Where the hell did she go? In the 2020, Margaret said that she first escaped to Guadalajara, Mexico, where she met a Spanish bank robber who was also on the run from the authorities. On the show, Margaret maintained that they had not been lovers, but he had taught her how to live like a fugitive. She said the most important thing about living as a fugitive is to always have a bag packed with everything you need to make a quick getaway. You need money, IDs, changes of clothes, of course, and wigs. Oh, my God. The wigs lead into the second thing, which is to become a master of disguise. You need to use aliases, of course, and get legitimate identification in those assumed names, if possible. She also traveled, like I said, with numerous wigs, changing her look from day to day or week to week. And later on the 2020, she just says that's her style. She loves wigs. She loves being a brunette one day and a redhead the next and a blonde the third. She says that's just who she is. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she wears several different wigs throughout the 2020 episode too. So she said that she loved life in Mexico. It was great. Like the Mexican people didn't care who she was or where she was from. Nobody asked her. But she did eventually miss her children and her grandchildren who were growing up. And she couldn't bear the thought of never seeing them again ever and being in Mexico for the rest of her life. So she decided to sneak back into the United States at some point. In her Mexican apartment complex, she had befriended a retired firefighter from the Boston suburbs named John Lundergan, who was willing to help smuggle her back into the country. Now, Margaret has this reputation as this seductive Black Widow. In fact, they, I might even call the episode the Black Widow Margaret Rudin because so many people call her this. Really? It's a misnomer insofar as she only killed the one husband. So she's not really a Black Widow. Yeah. 
I think that they meant it in so far as she seduced men to, you know, get ahead and get what she wanted and get accomplices and, you know, that sort of thing. But she says that she absolutely did not seduce John Lundergan. She emphatically denied a sexual relationship with him, saying kind of rudely on the 2020, I've never been that desperate in my entire life. Oh, that is rude. So rude. This guy, you know, it's his own skin sneaking you back in the United States. And then you do him dirty like that on national television. That's rude. My goodness. Margaret. Rude. So she said that at the border crossing, basically, he like whipped out his retired firefighter badge and was like, hey, like my girlfriend, you know, doesn't have her ID, but, you know, we're together. We're going back to Boston, like, you know, law enforcement to law enforcement, man to man, you know, public servant to public servant. Can you let us pass? And apparently it worked. Okay. Yep. So they got through. And once they got through, they went their separate ways. He went back to Revere, Massachusetts, where he was oh, from. Oh, my God. Revere. Revere. <laughs> <laughs> Again, guys, oh. if you, you missed our early episodes, Andy and I met in Boston. And Andy's husband is from the Boston area. So yes. we have a, a, a fondness for the Boston accent. So he went back to Revere. And she went to Phoenix, Arizona, where she managed to get a real driver's license in another woman's name. How? I do not know. She did not give away the secret, but she managed to get a real, honest-to-goodness Arizona driver's license. And she did get a job at a hotel as a desk clerk. She was staying at a YMCA. Eventually, a coworker recognized Margaret from America's Most Wanted, which is the hardest-working show of the 80s and 90s here. Seriously. Wow. He should still be on, to be honest. And she called the cops. But the only problem in this situation is that Margaret did have legitimate Arizona State ID. So when the police officer went to follow up, he's like running the ID. It's legit. Looks like the woman in front of him, you know. And he doesn't really know what to do. And so he goes back and he tells the complainant like, hey... I think that you're mistaken. And she's like, no, I'm not. And I'm scared because this woman's a murderer and we're like staying in the same YMCA. We're working in the same hotel and you need to do something about this. So he was trying to contact America's Most Wanted. He's trying to contact the FBI. He's trying to figure out if this is really Margaret and what to do because she appears to have totally legitimate ID and she was cool as a cucumber. Like, oh, you know, it's probably just a mistake. I've never heard of that woman. I've never even been to Las Vegas. Like, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. And so while he's trying to figure this all out, Margaret calls a limo service that she used through the hotel to come pick her up at the YMCA and disappears in a limo into the night for no one to see again. Her getaway vehicle was a limo. From the YMCA. From the YMCA. (gasps) Yeah, I think so at this point, it it talks about in the book how then they believe that she went back to Mexico for a little while. But on the 2020, she says that they thought she was in Mexico or they might have thought she was in Chicago for some points. But instead, she went to Revere and she shacked up with John Lundergan once more. Stop. This poor guy. She said that John needed her help because he had recently had, I think, like both knees had surgery. So he was not doing so well. He needed somebody to take care of him. So she said it was like a good relationship for both. She could go hide out with him. She changed her name again. And he got somebody that would be willing to live with him and help take care of him while he was immobile. 
Did he know that she murdered her husband? Uh, probably. I mean, she denied that she murdered her husband altogether. So did he know that she was suspected of murdering her husband? I believe so. Yes. However, that's very hard to prove. And I think that he said to the media, like he didn't know that he thought like she was just a, a woman on the run from a bad husband or something, you know? There was a little back and forth about that. And I got the feeling that he did know, but that's a big question mark. So yeah, she starts a new life in Revere, Massachusetts. And apparently at this point, a woman named Roma, who was a friend of Margaret's, came forward and told the FBI that she had been forwarding mail from Margaret to her family members. The FBI began to monitor all the mail that flowed through Roma. And after several months, managed to find an address of a Revere post office. Margaret had settled in quite nicely in Revere. She later said that she found the people of Massachusetts to be wonderful. She said they were honest, sincere, and forthright. And I think forthright is one word for it, what the people of Boston are. (laughs) For sure. For sure. So apparently the feeling was mutual because uh, they interviewed an owner of a diner that Margaret was a regular at. And the owner said this about her. I cannot do the Boston accent anymore, guys. I'm sorry I tried. I have lost it. So I'm just going to read it normally. But you can imagine, Andy, if you want to pitch in, you can. She was a stand-up woman. I never (laughs) had a bad thing to say about her. About it. About it. (laughs) About it. She never gave reason. We have a lot of nice people around here. You know trash from trash. And she was a nice person. <laughs> That's pretty good, Jess. I tried. I always just think of Casey Affleck from the SNL Dunkin' Donuts skit. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect example. So yeah, so apparently she fit right in. So the FBI talked to the postal workers who gave them Margaret's address. And from there, they disguised an agent as a Domino's pizza delivery man to get inside the apartment. Whoa. Yep. Uh, Once in, they discovered Margaret hiding in the bathtub and she gave herself up without a fight. After 30 months on the run, Margaret, the Black Widow Rudin, was returned to Las Vegas to face justice. Whoa. Uh, On March 2nd, 2001, Margaret stood trial for the murder of her fifth husband, Ronald Rudin, and it was a circus. Yeah, I cannot impress upon y'all how unprofessional and ridiculous this trial was. Judge Bonaventure, who presided over the trial, told 2020 that in the 42 years that he was on the bench, this was the worst trial he ever attended. Whoa. Even going into the trial, there had been drama. Margaret had hired and fired a whole parade of attorneys, resulting in the trial being delayed several times. She was completely out of money, understandably cut off from Ron's millions, out of options, and unhappy with her latest round of public defenders when a private defense attorney named Michael Amador offered to take her case pro bono. Amador was an unconventional attorney, to say the least. His legal motions leading up to the trial were pretty bizarre. In one, he argued that the murder charges needed to be dropped altogether because the police and prosecution were in a unholy alliance with the trustees of Ron's estate. Oh. So the judge denied that, obviously. Another motion attempted to get the wiretap evidence thrown out. While doing so, Amador ripped apart the credibility of Ron's longtime secretary, Sharon, writing, Quote, Sharon Melton's most consistent asset to Ronald Rudin Realty had been that she blew the boss, in parentheses, he wrote, the deceased herein, on a regular basis. He wrote that in a legal brief. Whoa. 
Needless to say, the judge was less than impressed and berated Amador for the language he'd used in the brief during a pretrial hearing. However, he'd become much, much less impressed with Amador as the trial went on. The prosecution opened by saying that Margaret was a ruthless, greedy woman who was motivated by jealousy and avarice, and rather than risk a divorce where she could lose her antique shop and walk away with just a small portion of the pie, she had decided to murder her fifth husband, garnering 60% of his estate, which was up to $7 million. When it was the defense's turn for opening statements, Michael Amador woefully failed to cohesively present their thesis argument, which their argument wasn't terrible. In a nutshell, it was that they sought to prove that Margaret was in fact innocent and that the police had blinders on, that they only went after Margaret and they didn't investigate Ron's sketchy and fraudulent business practices and that he might have had potentially dangerous business associates, seeing as he had been paranoid about security long before Margaret came into his life. And they also said that they hadn't investigated the footprints that were in the car as well as they could have. And they didn't know if they belonged to, you know, different men who might have done this to Ron. But instead of planting the seed of reasonable doubt, Amador rambled on and on about himself in a completely incomprehensible way. So this is an excerpt from his real opening statement. (laughs) He said, I reviewed again this morning most of my opening statement and I threw it away. I don't know. Maybe it's just something I do. Long rambling and at times just plain weird, the defense opening focused as much on Amador as it did on the facts of the case. This is Michael Fleeman talking about this opening statement. If you want to know an opinion about me, Amador said, I guarantee you'll find some. It's different for different people. Not too many people know me. I have few close friends. He said, then making this tenuous link to the murder case, like Ron Rudin had few close friends. He talked about how he, Amador, would go to his son's soccer games and how he knew many of the cops involved in the case and how he would sometimes get frustrated and yell at his office staff. The judge would interrupt Amador several times. With his eye on the clock, Beneventure said that he didn't mind 10 or 15 minutes of Amador's philosophical musings in front of the jury, but I wish in all respect that you would just get to what the evidence in your opinion tends to show and then move on. I hate to interrupt you. I'm obligated as the judge to do that. Oh, my God. Yeah. The judge was completely aghast by the time Amador wrapped this up. He said at the end, the purpose of an opening statement is just to indicate what the evidence is going to show and not going into your personal beliefs and your passion and your soccer dad and your yelling at the staff. And when you were a green lawyer and you know all the cops and you used to be a DA and you, I guess, communicate differently. The judge had apparently written all of these things down as he looked to be reading off of a list. And then he said, I never heard that in an opening statement in my life. So yeah, if you guys watch the 2020, you get a portion of this rambling opening statement and it's atrocious. So prosecutor Gary Guymom said that at this point, he turned to his co-counsel and said, give me a cigarette. This thing's over. Like right from the beginning. Clearly this trial got off to an inauspicious start and it didn't get much better from there. The prosecution presented the forensic evidence that proved via DNA that the majority of the blood found in the bedroom was indeed Ron's. Though they did admit that the flecks found in the ceiling were proven to be female in nature, meaning they were most likely Peggy's. Oh, that's so sad. But everything on the ground was Ron's. They DNA matched it. 
But the defense said that Ron suffered from really bad nosebleeds. So that was a totally normal thing that his blood would be all over the bedroom. Okay, guys. Yeah. (laughs) If you have nosebleeds so bad that it pools around you in a giant puddle, I think you need to go to a doctor. So yeah, they were trying to say that Ron was not killed in the home at all, that that it was done elsewhere by people who are not Margaret. They, like I said, believe that the real evidence went uninvestigated in the whole car situation. The prosecution scored points with the jury, particularly with the gun and the trunk. It seemed very unlikely that anyone could have gotten their hands on that gun other than Margaret. Yeah. And not only did Margaret have the trunk in her inventory with no buyer, the antiques, the antiques picker, Bruce, testified that he had sold it to her. However, there was another rebuttal witness that was for the defense that tried to say that he was the one who sold it to Bruce and it was a small chest and not a large chest and there was no way a body could fit into that. So take what you want from that. <laughs> Donna, Margaret's sister, also made a compelling witness for the prosecution, outlining the bugged office and how when she discussed Ron's disappearance, Margaret had said that she didn't give a shit. The prosecution rested, and when it was the defense's turn to present their case, everything went straight to hell. First of all, Michael Amador had been cocking up the cross-examinations left and right. He was so unprepared. It was almost like he didn't even know who the witnesses were that he was questioning. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so when they start on their side, he actually motions for a mistrial stating his own ineffectiveness as an attorney. Oh, my God. What? Yes. Yeah, so the judge is like, what the hell? Okay, everybody back to my chambers here. And this guy volunteered to be her defense attorney. Yes, yes. (laughs) In judge's chambers, Amador's co-counsel, Tom Pitaro, agreed that Amador had been terribly unprepared for the case. And while he was loath to criticize Mike, he said, I like Mike. I don't want to criticize him, but he is not doing well. He'd said that he could not see a a way forward for the defense in a way that this, you know, wouldn't potentially get appealed later on for the state. Exactly, exactly. He said, so is this case ripe for mistrial? Yeah, that's the court's choice, not mine. But I don't know how we get out of this bind. I don't know how the state gets out of it. I don't know how the defense gets out of it. I'm going to have to leave it with you. So the judge said, you know what? I'm giving everybody a 10-day break. Michael Amador, get your shit together. And I'll make a ruling when everybody comes back. And I guess like Michael Amador behind closed doors had also told the judge that the reason why he was so ill prepared was because his wife had just left him right at the beginning of the trial and she was his paralegal and his ex-mother-in-law had been his receptionist. So when she left him, she also left, she also left the practice. So he's like, not only am I going through personal turmoil with my wife of so many years and mother of my children leaving me, I also am short office staff. So all of this is going on. And that's why the judge is like, you know, take some time for your own affairs here. But when he came back, Michael Amador had like changed his whole statement. He came back and whether it was because he was in front of a courtroom this time and, you know, there's people watching him and court TV was recording these proceedings. Oh my God. Yeah. This is being aired on live television. When he was asked this time, if he was ineffective, he's like, no, I wasn't, you know, perfect, but I don't, I wouldn't say that I was ineffective. His ego made him backpedal in front of the cameras and the crowd 
And so at that point, Judge Bonaventure is like, okay, well then, you know what? Fine. But then we are going to proceed. There's no mistrial. You know, I believe that a defendant is entitled to a fair trial, but not a perfect one. So the show must go on. I think he was also swayed by the fact that Margaret had delayed proceedings so many times by switching attorneys that it felt like another ploy, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the show most certainly went on. And now Michael Amador took a back seat to this, which was good. Tom Pitaro stepped in and then they brought in another seasoned attorney named John Mamat. And for whatever reason, these two gentlemen thought it was a great idea to make an entire like theatrical stage reproduction of the Rudin's bedroom, including the glamour portrait above the bed to do a reenactment of a supposed murder happening in the bedroom to try to prove that the blood could not have ended up where it ended up if the murder happened the way oh the God. prosecution was saying it. Oh my God. Okay. So they put all of this money into making the set. And then even more ridiculous is that Tom Pitaro is not a small man and he's like roly-poly rolling around the bed pretending to be a murder victim while reading like a script of dialogue between him and the other attorney. Oh my God. At which point the judge is like, eh, 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 stop, 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 stop. You are testifying and attorneys are not allowed to testify in trials. So what you're saying when you're putting these words in these people's mouths, this testimony. So stop it. This whole thing is a sham. You can't do it. Which Tom Pitaro got so angry about this that they started yelling at each other. So now the judge and the attorney who is supposed to be the good attorney are yelling at each other. And they're both like, I really don't appreciate you yelling at me. It's like, well, you're yelling at me. Well, you're yelling at me. It's It was ridiculous. At some point too on the 2020, if you watch it, Tom Pitaro is like running around the courtroom. He's like running down an aisle between the seats. And you're like, what is going on? Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh yeah, my God. So this thing is just a mess. And then finally, like Judge Bonaventure is like, oh my God, this trial is supposed to be four weeks long. It's stretching into nine weeks. He finally gets two closing statements and Michael Amador wanted to do the closing statement. And he's like, no, because you are a mess and I don't trust you to do the closing statements. And he's like, I promise I will only do 30 minutes and I will leave it to the scope of X, Y, and Z. He says, I'm going to focus on these things. This is my promise to you. Now, you know, court reporters there witnessing this conversation that they're having. It's all recorded. And then Michael Amador goes off on a tangent for like two and a half hours about everything and nothing again. And the judge is getting so angry. And then Amador, to his face, denies that he agreed to 30 minutes, even though the judge has it from a court reporter that he had agreed to this 30 oh, minutes. Oh, my God. By the end of it, the judge was so, so angry that he, like, finally said to Amador, regardless of the outcome of this case, and I don't care how it ends up, you, Mr. Amador, have lost this court's respect and believability. And most important, do your constant misstatements of facts. You have lost all honor before this court. Oh, my God. It was a mess. So this whole messy affair finally comes to a conclusion. And the drama does not stop there. Drama llama. It is a drama llama situation in this 
courtroom because the jury goes out to deliberate and there was one juror who had already caused kind of a kerfuffle. She had apparently tried to smoke a cigarette at the Golden Nugget where all the jurors were having dinner together. And when they told her, the waitstaff told her that she could not smoke inside, she had a huge scene, was like yelling at people. It was like this whole thing. It was it was like reported to the judge. That's how big of a commotion it became. So she was already kind of like noted as a problem juror. And basically when they start deliberating, 11 out of 12 of the jury members all quickly voted for guilty. Is this bitch the one that said no? So she's holding out. She says no. She is crying. She calls an alternate juror and is like, I guess we're voting guilty. I'm being forced into it. So the alternate juror is telling the court, like, I don't know what's going on. She feels like she's being forced into it. She's not supposed to be talking about it with anyone. So that's a no-no. So she needs to be fired. Yeah, the um, jury foreman, Ron Vest, was like completely sure. In the 2020, he calls the guilty verdict a slam dunk with a stepladder. Oh, and my God. He said that all of the other jurors felt the same way, but she was creating all these issues for them. Now, this woman, she ends up on the 2020 as well. Her name is Kareen. And so Kareen says that she was getting bullied to make a choice that she didn't want to get. And now they're both writing letters to the judge. And Ron is saying that she needs to be thrown off the jury. She's disruptive. But also, at one point, she started crying and saying that she related to Margaret in some way because her ex-husband, who had been a cop, had once threatened her with a gun. Now, that wasn't revealed in jury selection, which would have certainly disqualified her. So he's like, she revealed this to us. Doesn't that disqualify her? Can you please get her off the jury? Well, Kareen said that that's not what she said. She said that he had held a gun to his own head, not hers. So when they asked her if she had ever been like threatened by law enforcement or something, she had said no, honestly. Oh, Yeah, so this is a whole mess. And now the prosecutors are arguing with the defense. The defense clearly want to keep her in because if she keeps holding out, then they would have a hung jury. Margaret would get a new trial. The prosecutors are trying to get her thrown out for obvious reasons because 11 out of the 12 are wanting to vote guilty. And the judge was just so over this situation that he's like, she stays, whatever, say la vie, whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. And everyone was shocked by the very next day on Wednesday, May 2nd, when they say that they have come up with a verdict unanimously. So the day after all this drama goes down, they say that they've they've made their decision. And Margaret Rudin was found guilty of the murder of Ron Rudin. Goodness. Well, I mean, it was still high drama. If you see the episode, you can hear Corrine crying. She's sobbing throughout the reading of the verdict. Like when they go around and they, you know, make sure that every jury member has, you know, independently come to the same conclusion. She's like, yes. And then she whispers, I'm sorry to Margaret across the courtroom. Oh, my God. Yes, yeah, so this was a very dramatic trial and it was it was finally over, right? And Margaret very stoically receives the fact that she's guilty. She moves on. She almost immediately, you know, motions to appeal based on grossly ineffective counsel, which she has 
every right to in this situation. Yep. And her other attorneys helped her with this and they ended up putting together like really long motion. I think it ended up being like 80 pages or something because there were so many examples of Michael Amador screwing up. And there was also three affidavits attached to it of people who worked with him that saw how much he was screwing up. And one of his legal assistants contributed and she said, you guys don't even understand how bad it was. It was way worse behind the scenes. She said that he barely spent any time on the case before it went to trial at all. Instead, he spent an entire month in Europe with his now ex-wife instead of preparing for the trial. Oh, no. She said instead of using Margaret's supervised visits for trial prep, he instead lined up media interviews for her while he also got to be on TV. Then when the trial was just about to begin, like I said, Amador's love life went to pot. They lost two office workers. So this legal assistant is doing just about everything. And she said, and while I'm trying to keep everything together, he starts paying even less attention to the case because he's telling me now that he's going to strip clubs every single night. He's coming in the morning looking like he didn't sleep. And he starts bragging about all the exotic dancers he's dating during this trial, even allowing the exotic dancers to come into the office. And one of them was rifling through the Margaret Rudin file. Oh, wow. 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 And so, yeah. So in the midst of these filings, Margaret was still, despite you know, a very, very reasonable request for a new trial. She was sentenced to 20 years minimum in jail. So the craziest thing about this is that she was apparently offered several different plea deals, even into the trial, which is very uncommon. Usually they say once the trial starts, you're done, you deal with whatever happens, you know. But because the trial was such a travesty, she had even been offered plea deals into the trial. And the plea deals got so good that one of them that they offered her would have gotten her out of prison within one to two years after the time she'd already served. So if she had just taken that deal, she would have been out of prison in maybe a year, year and a half. Whoa. And she didn't want to take it? She refused. And she said on the episode of 2020 that she is innocent she was never willing to make a deal that said that she was guilty because she didn't want her kids and grandkids and great grandkids to think that she'd ever admitted to any guilt. She said she wanted to stand by her truth and she wanted to prove her innocence in a court of law. She also would have a harder time finding a husband to pay for her life. <laughs> if it was, if she was found convicted of her fifth husband's murder. Yeah. If she admit, you know, if she's free in a year or two, but she can't get a job and she can't find a husband, what is she going to do? Uh, I mean, that's true too. I mean, you know, ex-convicts do carry weight when they get out. It's not an easy go of it. So yeah, there might be that. But anyways, that's why she said she didn't take the plea deal. While serving her time, Margaret received a letter from juror number 11, Corrine, apologizing oh for being bullied into the guilty verdict. She said that it was the absolute greatest regret of her life that she had allowed the guilty verdict to happen. Margaret forgave her and the two became great friends. 
Karina always swore, you'll get out of here someday, Margaret, and I'll be waiting for you. So Margaret continued to plead her innocence, and she tried to fight for a new trial, and she was actually granted one in 2008. But the Nevada Supreme Court reversed the decision in 2010 based on a legal technicality, so she never did get her second day in court. Margaret was released on parole on January 10th, 2020, at the age of 76 years old. And she told reporters that she planned to move to Chicago to be closer to her daughter, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And guess who was waiting for her when she got out of prison? No, she was not. Kareen, juror number 11, was waiting with open arms. Oh, man. Now, despite being out scot-free, Margaret is still fighting for a new trial to clear her name. She's out and she still wants a new trial, which is convincing some people that maybe she really was innocent. I don't know. I got to say all the evidence seems to point to me that she is absolutely guilty and probably Yehuda got off scot-free as well. But she was pretty convincing on the 2020. In closing, she said, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. I'm innocent and God and I know the truth. So what do you think, Candy? (laughs) I'm going to keep my comments to myself. (laughs) Okay. Well, you don't have to keep your lips zipped much longer because I have, instead of the Wikipedia fun fact this week, which do the, do the thing. Oh, Wikipedia fun fact. Instead of that, we have (laughs) lawyersratings.com. Wow. Wow. Yes. So in the afterword of the book, If I Die by Michael Fleeman, He mentioned that on the same day that Margaret was sentenced to 20 years in prison, that day was Friday, August 31st, 2001. That same day in the same courthouse, Michael Amador filled out a marriage license to marry a woman named Maggie Maybe, who was a California woman who saw him on court TV during this trial and for whatever reason decided he was the love of her life. What? Yes. So after I read that, it's like the last page of the whole book. I was like, what, what was this guy's life like? So I had to, I had to look him up, obviously. And so the first thing that happens is that I look up his lawyer ratings because I was like, is he still practicing? Maybe he just had a really bad day. Maybe this is not his usual stick. Well, Lawyer ratings with a Z dot com would lead me to believe otherwise. The top three reviews were from 2017 and there were two from 2013. So they read, Michael Amador is a pompous, self-serving, self-indulging arse. He's an embarrassment to the field of law and spends much of his time indulging in activities, having nothing to do with defending the clients he's been retained to serve. He is a colossal idiot. Another one said, worst attorney I've ever had, never showed up to court on time, always smelled like a liquor cabinet and had no preparation at all. No. Another one called him a snake and said that he had scammed the person's mother out of $5,000. Oh my God. Wow. So yeah, so then I found out over Thanksgiving of 2009, he got into a fight at a bar about some money that was left on a pool table 
And the men that he had been arguing with left the bar. They tried to get into their car to leave. Instead, he came out. He kept yelling at them, trying to engage them in a fight. And then he pulled a handgun out of his waistband and smashed it on their rear window, breaking the rear window. Oh, my God. And so at that point, the bouncer and these two guys, like, got out and tackled him to the ground. And he had, like, bruises all over his face, like, in his mugshot. He had to go to the hospital. I don't know how it all turned out, but it was definitely a mess. So at the end of the day, I was like, dear Lord, is this man still practicing? Like, what is going on? And so I Googled Michael Amador now, and I have some sad news, guys. What? Michael Amador has passed. He passed away last February 2021 at the age of 66. And the obituary did not say from what, although now it makes sense why he wasn't on the 2020 episode because I was kind of wondering about that. But it did say that he was survived by his ex-wife and best friend, Maggie. So even though it looks like their marriage didn't work out, it looks like to the very end, that woman that he married so quickly was there for him. Oh, it's a Jesse story. (laughs) Kind of. I hope my story doesn't end (laughs) like this. Really genuinely do hope that that's not how Nathaniel and I end. <laughs> what, you snatching someone's back windshield with a gun? I like that you automatically assume it's me and not Nathaniel. I like that you go there. I mean, you're right. You're totally correct. Uh, <laughs> but yes, anyway, that man had a very interesting life. I hope he is at rest now and condolences to Maggie and his sons. Wow. Wow. Wow, what a story. I hope you guys enjoyed. I know this was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there with us. In conclusion, guys, if you are ever on trial for murder, I suggest that you choose your attorneys very, very, very carefully. Yeah, in addition to that, you probably shouldn't choose your husband's casket from your own antique store that you own. That's a really good point, Andy. That is. Missing from inventory. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so you don't get married for the fifth time and maybe get framed for your fifth husband's murder. Bye. Bye. Love you guys.